Welcome to Lakeside Church. If I don't know you, I'm Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And if it's your first time here, or maybe it's your first time in a while, we are super glad that you are here. We have some friends right across the way in a building right next to us that are joining us. It's the family room. So can we give it up for our friends over in the family room? Love that you guys are joining us. Wouldn't it be great if you could just have a conversation with God? I mean, sort of like you could sit down and talk to a good friend. I imagine it being over a great cup of French press coffee, if you know what I mean. Or maybe it's on a long walk in the woods, or you're cruising down a highway at night in the desert, windows are down, it's summertime, and it's just you and God, and you can sort of just tell them whatever you need to tell them, where you're scared in life, what's frustrating you, and where you need help. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could hear from God when we needed it most, when we are hurting, when we need some comfort, when we need some wisdom, when we need some direction in life? I just think it would be fantastic if we could sit down and have a conversation with God. And you know, I, I wish it was easy. I wish it was just, you could just do it when, when, when you needed to, sort of like they make it look in the movies. You know, things are bad for the character in the movie, and, 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 and life is terrible, and then everything kind of goes quiet, and he hears the voice of Morgan Freeman. <laughs> like my doppelganger, Jim Carrey, found out as Bruce in Bruce Almighty. We're looking for room seven. Hello? Yeah, seems to be. Kind of bright, though. Yeah, it is for most people. Spend their lives in the dark trying to hide from me. Well, the elevator's broken, huh? Yeah, but I'll get around to it. You install the clapper? No, but catch a jingle, isn't it? Ah, clap on, clap off, clap on, clap off. The clapper. <laughs> Just can't get it out of my head, man. Well, good luck with that. I'm gonna go now. Okay, but the boss will be right out. You must be Bruce. I've been expecting you. This is hilarious. So you're the boss and the electrician and the janitor. Must be a killer Christmas party. Don't get drunk, though. One of you might need a ride home. <laughs> <laughs> you always were funny, Bruce. That's like your father. He didn't mind rolling up his sleeves either, son. People underestimate the benefit of good old manual labor. It's freedom in it. Some of the happiest people in the world go home smelling to high heaven at the end of the day. All right, what is this? How do you know my father, and how'd you get my pager number? Oh, I know quite a lot about you, Bruce. Just about everything there is to know. Everything you've ever said, or done, or thought about doing, right there in that file cabinet. Wow, a whole drawer just for me. Mind if I take a look? Sure, like. This ought to be good.
last entry was a little disturbing. taken my bird and my bush. God is a mean kid with a magnifying glass. Smite me, almighty smite. So even if it's a little painful, wouldn't it be fantastic just to be able to have a conversation with God? There's nothing better than a good conversation, especially if it's with somebody that you really care about. I had this fantastic talk with my son not too long ago, and it was unplanned. It just sort of happened, and it was deep, and it was long, and it was beautiful, and it was life-giving to me. And I find that often that's how it goes with God. And there's some things that have to be true if that conversation with my son is going to take place. I mean, I have to want to have the conversation, right? I, I have to be able to press the pause button in my life. I, I, you, you try to plan these conversations. Let's get a cup of coffee. Let's put it on the calendar and let's have a meeting, son. And those never seem to go as well as the ones that sort of just happen. But you sort of have to see the signs that he wants to hang for a little while and have a conversation. I have to know a little bit about what he's interested in so that the converse, conversation could go deeper than just the surface level. And I find often that that's just how it goes with God. How do we learn how to listen to God's voice? How do we learn how to hear God's voice? Does he speak to us? That's the question. That's the first question in a new series that we're starting here at Lakeside called Transformed. Now, if you've been around for the last several weeks, you know that we've been in a series on this journey sort of through the book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul. And it's been fantastic, but we're going to press the pause button and talk about this idea of transformation. Now, eventually, we're going to get back to the book of Romans, and we're going to get to Romans chapter 12, where Paul actually talks about transformation. And in it, he says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. I think what Paul's saying is that there is this pattern that we can get trapped by. There is this way of doing life. There's this way of being a dad. There's this way of being a mom, of being a friend that isn't healthy for us. There is a way to be human that is actually dehumanizing to us. He says, don't get conformed to that pattern, but instead be transformed. And he talks about this renewal process that begins in the mind, but it has to go down to the heart. It has to exude out into our lives. And when that happens, we begin to get in touch with God's voice and what he wants for us. We have this wisdom to be able to sort of hear from God. You ever want to know, God, what is your will for my life? What's your will for this situation? Will you speak to me, God? How do we learn to listen to God's voice? 
If you've been around Lakeside at all for the last 28 years, we've been talking about transformation. It's a big deal. We have that word in our mission statement. We say that we are on a mission to transform as many people as possible into passionate and productive followers of Jesus. We just believe that God wants to change lives. And quite frankly, if he's not, then what are we doing? What what are we doing here? There's a lot of weekends where a nice bike ride, a good cup of coffee, and a good book seem a lot more attractive if transformation isn't part of the deal. He wants to transform our lives to be passionate because it's not just some cold, rote, legalistic, stand-up, sit-down type of religion thing that we're doing. We're not here to jump through hoops and perform for God. He wants our hearts. He wants relationship. He wants us. And we want it to be productive because we want the transformation to do something in our lives because we want it to do something in our relationships. Life is relationships. We want to be more loving and kind and faithful and gentle and all those things that we're hoping that God will do in our marriages and our relationship with our kiddos, with our friends and neighbors and our, and our coworkers. And so transformation is a big deal to us. And part of the journey of transformation is this idea of learning to listen to the voice of God. And so how do we do that? How do we hear from God? Well, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open to Acts chapter 9. And you may use the YouVersion app. There's a bunch of stuff on there, uh, probably more stuff than I'll get to, some passages of Scripture and stuff. And you can open that and use that. There's also the seat Bibles around you. But I thought that it would be cool to tell you some stories today. I I do want to mention one thing first, though, because there are some non-negotiables in this whole idea of being able to hear from God. And and these non-negotiables, I believe that they're sort of the air that we breathe. You ever try to hold your breath for a really long time and it's a little painful? You ever have those underwater contests when you were a kid with your friends and who can hold their breath for 30 seconds, a minute, three minutes? I mean, and it starts to feel painful. Well, these things are the air that we breathe when it comes to having that conversation with God. It's the scriptures, prayer, and actually people and how God can speak to us through others, sometimes that have gone before us, that have some wisdom for us to hear. So I'm not going to talk a lot about those, but those are present in everything that we say this morning. But I thought, I thought, what if there was somebody, what if there was somebody that God changed and could we learn from his story? I mean, what if there was somebody that was so bad, that was so evil, that was so wrong, that was so deceived, that thought that they were serving God, but actually they were destroying people and they were destroying themselves. And God were to change that person, could, could he change me as well? In the book of Acts, we learn about the early church, but we also learn about this guy named Saul. Saul, who would later become Paul, you might know him as the Apostle Paul. He wrote a third of the New Testament. Thirteen letters in all are attributed to the Apostle Paul. But once he was Saul, and he was not a good man. In the beginning of Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul was breathing out murderous threats 
against the Lord's disciples. I mean, this is a guy that was evil, that was dragging Christians off to prison and casting his vote against them to put them to death. If God can change a guy like that, maybe he could change me, Sean Miller, here, Folsom, California, 2016. Maybe he can transform my life as well. Later on in Paul's life, he's writing a letter to some of his former enemies, and he's in prison, and he's older now. And he says to the Philippians, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's a remarkable statement considering that Paul was a religious terrorist. I mean, we can't sugarcoat this at all. He was highly intelligent. He knew people. He was highly respected, but he was also feared. And he was hungry for power and position. And anybody that got in his way, he would crush them. And he was crushing followers of Jesus in the early church. He'll say to another church, um, the, the church in Thessalonica, he'll say, we were as gentle among you. I mean, this is a former terrorist speaking. We were as gentle among you like a mother nursing her baby. How does somebody change like that? He says, we not only shared the good news of Jesus with you, the gospel, but we also shared our lives as well. Paul wasn't out for converts. He wasn't out to, to check the box and say, okay, we got more people coming in the door now. He wanted life and relationship. He wanted to know these people. He loved them. If God can change somebody like that, could he change you? Could he change the person that you've been praying for all these years? Well, how did it happen? How did it happen with Paul? I think it begins with this encounter that he has with Jesus. And so look down in Acts chapter 9. Again, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priests and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus was 150 miles away. This is the length that Paul would go to as he traveled around the world, even to foreign cities, dragging out men and women from their synagogues, their places of worship, to force them to blaspheme. Why blasphemy? Because it was punishable. It was a capital offense. Remember the story of Easter when the high priest is, is tearing their robes and Jesus is there and they're saying, blasphemy, blasphemy, we got to crucify this guy. This is who Paul is. He says, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way was how they referred to the early church at that time, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink 
anything. Saul's life is hit by a freight train. His dreams, his passions, his goals, where he wanted to get in life, all of that is completely interrupted. And by the way, his goal, his passion in life was not to be a terrorist. That was just a means to an end. I believe that Paul's ultimate goal was to be in a position of power and prestige. He wanted power in the way that he would find power as a Pharisee, which was essentially a lawyer, as a young lawyer in that day. He wanted to work his way up, I believe, to the supreme court of the land. He wanted to sit on the council called the Sanhedrin that was made up of 71 members. This was Paul's life goal. He wanted to be at the top. He wanted to win. And all of that is interrupted. All of that is stopped. Everyone knew Paul. People were afraid of him. People wondered about him. People knew him. There was a man named Stephen who was killed. In Acts chapter 7, people picked up rocks and they threw them at Stephen until he was bloodied and dead. And Saul stood there and gave his approval. And so what's happening with him is radical and it's very public. People know about it. Let me ask you, what sort of interruptions are you facing these days? Where were you going? What were you dreaming? Who were you with when you were painfully interrupted and you realized that your future was going to be different than you dreamt that it would be? Crushed dreams, unmet expectations, disillusionment. Any of those sound familiar to you? There is nothing in life that gets our attention quite like pain. I mean, you think about it. When your body hurts, you listen. You hear it. Even if you don't do anything about it, you hear it. When you hurt relationally and you have that conversation and you listen to what the other person is saying. When you hurt emotionally and maybe you seek out some counsel or you seek out some therapy. When you hurt spiritually and you you find somebody that's further down the road, a mentor, a spiritual guide, a spiritual mentor, and you try to seek help and healing. There's almost nothing in life that speaks to us that causes our mouth to be zipped and our ears to be open quite like pain does. It seems that Paul's pain is connected to his ability to hear from God, and his ability to hear from God is somehow connected to the transformation that he goes through. In other words, his pain wasn't wasted. We might say that his pain was redeemed. It's not just pain for pain's sake for Saul, who became Paul. You may have heard of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was one of the brightest minds of the 20th century, brilliant, uh, fantastic author, deep thinker. And he thought a lot about pain, actually. And he wrote about pain. He wrote some essays. He wrote a couple books on pain. One of them was called The Problem of Pain. And in it, he says, pain insists 
I'm being attended to, and isn't that the truth? God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. C.S. Lewis knew his fair share of pain. When he was young, he grew up in Belfast, Ireland, in a big house with a big library, and life was great. He lost himself in books and poems and, and created these fantasy worlds, and, and he just loved to read. And the most important person in his life was his mom, who was always there, always caring for him, always loving him and his older brother. But when he was about 9 or 10, his mom died. And his father, who was emotionally detached and distant, three weeks after his wife died, shipped his two sons off to England to go to boarding school. C.S. Lewis, later on in his life, will write about these boarding schools. He went to three of them, and he would describe how horrible they were. He was bullied. He was lonely. He was bored at times. One of the schools didn't even have a good enough library that he had back when he was a little kid, and so he found himself bored, and he found himself escaping into these fantasy worlds once again. And he made up these lands where animals can talk. He called it the land of boxing, and years later, it was the beginnings of the Chronicles of Narnia. After he got out of school, he would have to endure the horrors of the trenches of World War I. And then, of course, later on in life, his wife, Joy Davidson, would die of cancer. His early book, The Problem of Pain, was more theoretical than his second book, which he wrote after his wife died, called A Grief Observed. In it, he says, nothing will shake a man, or at any rate, a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional or, we might say, theoretical beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture will bring out the truth. Only under torture does he discover himself. The torture that C.S. Lewis was writing about was that dark tunnel of the grief process where he was seen who he was, down deep, the wretched pain that he was going through. I believe that if we want to learn to listen to the voice of God, we must lean in to our pain and find that God is there. Naturally, we want to run away from our pain. One of my heroes these days is my daughter, Michaela. I got two kids uh, that are going to be college-age kids now. I have a 13-year-old as well. She's graduating next week from Vista, and I cannot believe how fast life is going. When Michaela was little, she was, she was a firecracker. She was a stud, highly competitive. Um, she was the best, the fastest player on our soccer team that I coached. I can still remember her running down the field through the falling snow, dodging the defenses and putting the ball in the back of the net. She was so aggressive and so competitive that I couldn't put her on defense because she would just run the field all the way up because she wanted to score. 
She was the fastest on her basketball team. When we moved to Folsom, she started swimming, and she hadn't been on a swim team before, but she quickly started advancing, and she actually knocked one of the swimmers out of the A, the kind of the top A team, the relay team. And then she started swimming competitively, and, and, and it was cool. And then we were interrupted. There are days where she has more pain just in that one day than I will have in a year because of a condition that she is struggling with that she's learning how to manage. And I tell you that story, and I I actually have permission to tell you that story because that's been part of my journey as well. Like, Like all dads, I have dreams for my baby girl. This little girl that when she was younger and I would watch her run through the house and she would play characters and dress up and and she would have costumes on and she loved animals and her blonde hair would bounce all over the place and she was feisty and she would fight for what she believed in. I have dreams for her to be happy and healthy and all of that, just like you have for your kids. But the reason I tell you that is because of what this journey has done inside me. I have learned more about my own heart, about my own character, about the things that I wrestle with from going through this than five years of lazy days and victories and easy times. There's just something about pain that when we lean into it, and we begin to listen, God is able to grab a hold of the deep parts of us. And when we allow him to do that, he begins to do his transforming work. I could tell you some cool stories about things that have come out of that, like her art and how she is a fantastic artist and a storyteller and she writes stories and and 120 plus original characters that she's created. God redeems things and and he invites new dreams in and it's fantastic. What sort of pain are you in the midst of these days? Later on in the Apostle Paul's life, he was in physical pain, and he wants it to go away. I mean, why not? (laughs) Who wants physical pain? He says, God, will you take this pain away? And God says, no. He says, will you take it away, please? And God says, no. Come on, God. I'm the Apostle Paul, man. I'm your servant. I'm out here leading people to know you. Their lives are being transformed. Help me out here. And God says, no. And then in a way, and I don't know how Jesus does this. I don't know how he spoke. I don't know what it was like. But Jesus comes along and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, My grace is enough. It's sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. There's something about weakness. There's something about that. You think about the weakest moment in history, the weakest moment with Jesus and he's on the cross and the power of the resurrection that has come out of that, the power of possibility, the power of new life, the power of healing for you and for me. 
Sometimes I hear that verse and I, I'm trying to figure out, now how does this apply to my situation? How, how can I get encouraged by this? And I sort of have to look under the covers a little bit. And so there's a couple of words in there that are really interesting. One is the word power. In the original Greek, it's the word dunamis. And, and, and that word actually, uh, hundreds of years later in 1867, they would invent dynamite and they would say, well, wow, let's name this dynamite because dunamis means explosive power. Not just a little bit of power, but explosive power. And then there's the word perfect. God's power is made perfect in weakness. It's not talking about moral perfection, and it's not talking about getting straight A's. It's the word talios, or talos, which is the word for finish line, for goal, for completion, mission accomplished. And so I thought, what if we sort of understood it a a little bit differently? Maybe it'd be helpful for us. What if we read it this way? My explosive power accomplishes my goal of transformation in the midst of your pain and your suffering. I think it's what King David, a king in the Old Testament, meant when he wrote the poem, when he wrote the song in Psalm 23, when he said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff They comfort me. You are here in the midst of my pain, and you have my attention, and you're speaking. As we lean into our pain, we find that God is there and that he speaks. If we were to follow Paul's journey along the way uh, in this Acts chapter 9, we would learn some things about him that, that uh, he, he goes blind, as, as the passage said, and, and, and he goes into Damascus after his eyes are open and he starts to, to teach and he starts to argue with uh, some of the Hebrew scholars there and they're blown away by this guy. This is the guy that was killing people and now he's proclaiming the name of Jesus. What is going on with this guy? And you would think, you know, Paul wanted that power, right? He wanted the top position. He wanted the fame. And you would think that he would make a beeline to Jerusalem where it was all happening. I mean, why not just transfer one dream for another? I wanted power on the Sanhedrin, and now I want power in the church. But he doesn't do that. It looks in Acts chapter 9 like he does do that until we read about what he said in his letter to the Galatians. There's this little thing he includes about his story. He doesn't make a beeline for Jerusalem. When Paul confronts Jesus, he just goes away. Paul goes away. For three years, he goes away. He tells the Galatians that he goes away into the land of Arabia. At that time in the ancient world, the land of Arabia was a huge area that included deserts. It included a mountain called Mount Sinai. Why would Paul just leave it all and go off into solitude? I think one of the things that he was doing, Paul is a Hebrew scholar. He knows the stories of all of the people that have come before him, the leaders that have come before him. And I think he's thinking of Moses a little bit and how Moses spent time in solitude out in the desert in confusion, confusion, wondering what was going on, how Moses spent time on the mountain. At one point, Moses says, Show me your ways, Lord, that I might know you. 
I think he's thinking of Moses. I think he's maybe thinking of Elijah, another Old Testament leader. Elijah was a prophet, and Elijah was powerful, and he had, he had great victories. And he spoke boldly during a real dark time in the history of the nation of Israel. There was an evil king and an evil queen on the throne, and he has this great victory. But then he runs away because the queen is after him, and she wants to kill him, and he's depressed, and he wants to quit, and he's just in a ditch, and he's saying, Lord, just end it now, and God picks him up, and God feeds him, and he takes him to the mountain, the same mountain, and he goes into a cave, and he sits there, and then God comes and speaks to him in a still, small voice. I think, I think Saul, who would become Paul, is just living out the rhythm that he sees in the leaders before him and realizing that there's something about solitude. In fact, I believe that in solitude, that's where he learns how to listen to the voice of God. I had the chance to uh, go away recently. In fact, back in February, I... I gave a talk called The Power of the Pause, and in it I talked about these four rhythms that I try to practice in my life. They go like this, divert daily, that's sort of my daily time with God, rest weekly, so that's like your weekly day off, your Sabbath, retreat quarterly, I try to get away about once a quarter, maybe go to a coffee shop in Sacramento, journal, think, kind of get my bearings about what's happening in life, and then disengage annually. A couple weeks ago, I had the chance to disengage. And it's funny because when these times come, I, I'm, I, I'm always tempted to just cancel it because you, you got to get organized and you got to get busy and it seems a little selfish. <laughs> I'm going to go away and spend time by myself. I, I went up to Tahoe and it's beautiful and, and I took these long walks. One day I walked about eight miles and some of the other days I walked about four and a half and five miles and I'm walking through the woods talking to God and I'm telling him what's on my heart and I'm getting really animated and and angry at times and I would say stuff that I don't want you guys to hear but I'll let God hear it and and there's other times where I'm just sort of quiet and I'm listening and then there's other times where I'm sitting on a picnic bench and just sort of looking at the water and the white cap mountains that are still have snow on them and I'm just spending time in solitude I always forget how helpful and how powerful those times are. I always forget that when I will take the time and do the soul work that needs to be done in me, that it's actually a gift for when I come back to the community. It's actually a gift for my marriage. It's a gift for my kids. It's a gift for those that I'm in community with. Solitude is is a gift, it's also a discipline because it's very difficult to pull off in our driven lives. And if you're exhausted and you're driven, then I want to encourage you to practice the discipline of solitude. And maybe it can't be for a week. Maybe it, it is just for a day. Maybe it's for an hour where you just stop and you don't have any media input. You don't have all this stuff flying at you. And you can just be. I like what Picasso says about solitude. He says, without great solitude, no serious work is possible. I love that. You want to be more productive in life. 
Solitude helps. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed in Nazi Germany in a camp, said, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. If you can never detach from your busy life, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, That's, there's a danger there if you cannot be alone. It, because when you're alone, things happen that make you better in your relationships. Henry Nouwen, in The Way of the Heart, says, Solitude is the furnace of transformation. I love that phrase, the furnace of transformation. When I was in college, I was a part of a college ministry, and we used to sing this song. And it went, Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire. And every once in a while, I used to think, That's my heart's one desire? Refiner's fire? Are you kidding me? I love this phrase, solitude is the furnace, there's pain involved in that, of transformation. He says, without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. The false self, I think what Nowen is talking about is that pattern that the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 12. So easy to regress back into that, so easy to get entangled into that. He says Jesus himself entered into the furnace. When we, when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right at the beginning of the New Testament part of the Bible, we see Jesus going off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. But we also see this pattern of him going off into lonely places, of escaping, so that he could be a gift when he came back to his community, his followers, his disciples. And if the Lord needed that, then I think, I think I need that rhythm in my life as well. He says, solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter, the, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. So the idea is that when we practice solitude, God is able to get a hold of us in such a way that we experience Him speaking, we experience that transformation, and we offer ourselves back to God and back to those in our community. And we become people of hope for a world that is often in great pain. My kids are growing up way too fast. I don't know, I don't know if that's your experience. They're, they're growing up way too fast. Two college-age kids? I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy. I remember when they were little, and my goal in a day off with them was to go drive around and find the best park. You know, the best park in the city, the best park in the county. Well, where, where's the best swing set? Where's the best slide? You know, where's the best coffee shop right next to the park? I loved it when they were little. It was so fun. But it's good that they grow. And it's healthy that they grow up. That's the way we want it. We would be worried if they didn't. When you look back at your life, do you see the kind of growth and transformation that you had hoped for? Because it's never too late. It's never too late to 
invite God in to the middle of your pain. It's never too late to invite God in to times of solitude, to speak to your heart, to pour your heart out to God and to begin to dream again. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thanks that you speak. God, again, you you don't just push creation into motion and leave us alone as orphans. God, you come to us. You adopt us. You love us. You went to the cross and rose again for us, and you invite us to come to you. All who are weary, all who are wiped out, all who are exhausted, you say, come to me so that you can give us rest. And God, would you do that? Would you do that in the way that you can do that? You are the only one that can grab a heart and change it, that can heal it, that can soften it, that can guide it. And so, God, would you do that? And we thank you. As we sang earlier, we pour out our hearts to you. In your name, amen.